0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 21, 1-5. This is the Word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives... Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. Our text this morning is the triumphal entry. I'm sure you've read this quite a few times, if you've been a Christian for any length of time. The triumphal entry is that of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the crucifixion. Now almost a third of the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. So certainly there must be a lot for us to learn. It's also interesting to me that all four gospels record this event in different ways, but if you look carefully, they do harmonize together. The coronation of earthly kings and queens is quite an impressive sight. Perhaps the most elegant, over the top celebrations are the United Kingdom. The most recent event, as most of you I'm sure are aware, was the coronation of King Charles III. Now it's amazing to see the careful coordination of this entire event. Regiments of soldiers in bright, brilliant red tunics, gold braid, Bearskin hats. The horses are beautiful, uh, immaculately groomed with polished buckles, shining harnesses. And the carriages, especially the Golden State coach, makes quite a statement being pulled by eight horses. I've often been amazed how they can control eight horses at once. I've seen that coach up close in the Royal Mews at Buckingham Palace. Very impressive. Suspension needs some work, but Very impressive. (laughs) What's lost on most viewers is the significance of the religious ceremony in Westminster Abbey. The new monarch is technically head of the Church of England. The sovereign being um, coronated holds the title defender of the faith and supreme governor of the Church of England. And as such, the new king or queen bows to the supremacy of God Almighty and pledges to serve in the fear of God, and there's tremendous symbolism in the various items used during the coronation. Most people have no idea what any of this stuff means. Most of it's ancient, from hundreds of years ago, but it's kind of interesting just to look at a couple of them. The royal scepter, the ensign of kingly power and justice. The jeweled sword of state, the punishment of evildoers. The royal embroidered robe, There were several of them used, but one of them, in particular, is meant to signify the divine robe of righteousness in which we are to clothe ourselves. The orb of gold. The worldwide dominion of the cross. There's a cross right on top of the orb. The single white glove. A mark of purity and commitment to rule the kingdom. And then, of course, the ultimate private part of the ceremony. The anointing with oil. A private part behind a screen part of the ceremony and the king wears a simple white shirt and what is that signifying that he comes before God as a servant the Dean of Westminster pours oil into the coronation spoon very very old spoon which was then used by the Archbishop of Canterbury to anoint the king on his head on his hands and on his chest now these are just a few details of what happens during the crowning of an earthly monarch. But today in these verses in Matthew 21, we see the lowly carpenter from Nazareth. He's hailed as Israel's king. The crowds shouted their approval of him as the promised Messiah. Their hope, of course, was that he would enter into the city and be coronated, be crowned as a king. Little did they know that his mission was truly to save, but not in the way that they imagined. Reigning would certainly come, but only after his suffering and death. Philippians 2 tells us in the familiar verse that we know, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So why does he receive the victor's crown and royal diadem? Because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's interesting that the Lord's actions at this particular time are quite different than the general tenor of his public ministry. And Greg alluded to this last week in his message. Often he withdrew from the multitudes, asking those that he blessed to say nothing. On one occasion, they would have made him king, but he withdrew and passed on. In John 6, in fact, after the tremendous miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with the, remember the barley loaves and the fish? It says in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we would ask ourselves this question, why this change? I think the answer is because Jesus knew that the days of his public ministry were ending. He was approaching Jerusalem in anticipation of his laying down his life for sinners. And his entrance on this occasion to the city would be done in such a way that there would be no doubt in anybody's mind that was truly observing carefully who he really was. He was declaring that he was Israel's promised Messiah. The whole city was stirred up when they heard the crowds praising him with, Hosanna to the son of David. So the geographical setting of this entry is also interesting. And this first chart that I'll put up may help to orient ourselves as we think about this entrance to Jerusalem. On the right you see Bethany, and then a little bit further down the road is Bethpage, and then heading over the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you were standing on the Temple Mount and you're looking east over the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is a ridge that runs to the east of Jerusalem and around to the north of it. And if you were standing on the Temple Mount looking in that direction, you would see several roads, actually. This is just one of several that could get you to Bethany. One is a more winding route. It's further, but it's flatter. The one that that Jesus took is probably this one that I've indicated here that ends up running over the Mount of Olives into the city. Now, we kind of get a false sense of distance. You can easily walk this in about half an hour, maybe even less if it wasn't so hilly, but it's quite rugged. And in fact, the road that leads from Jericho up to Bethany towards Jerusalem was a very famous Roman road and it ascended some 3,000 feet. So this was the easy part. The last little bit of the journey was a very quick and easy part of the journey. And it's just amazing to think about how short these distances are. I've stood on the top of the Mount of Olives and looked toward the city, and I was quite impressed with the fact that here in North America, we think of these distances as being huge. They're not. They're very, very close together. So, It's likely during these last few days of Jesus' ministry that he went back and forth to the city several times because the distance is short and he can easily walk it from back to his friends at Bethany, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So I would like to go to the first point in your bulletin, if you would, preparation for the king, verses one to three, and Linda has read those for us. And in these verses, we observe very carefully the instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples. The village that they were right at and was just ahead of them was Bethpage. Now, I'm not pronouncing that correctly, by the way. It's a totally different pronunciation, but I'm not even going to try because I would end up messing it up. So for today's sermon, just forgive us. We'll call it Bethpage. They would go to that place and find a donkey with its full tied up and they were to untie it and bring the animals to him. Now, if challenged, they were to say, the Lord has need of them. Now, Mark 11 tells us that they were challenged. However, just as the Lord said, there was no reluctance or problem in allowing them to untie the donkeys and bring them to Jesus. So here's my first point. It's always best to follow the Lord's instructions. Men's hearts here are caused to submit to a higher power. Let's not fear, let's obey. Always best to obey the Lord. Secondly, we hear or we see in this uh, first part of this section an example of our Lord's perfect knowledge. Jesus knew exactly where to send them, what they would find, and what to say. There's nothing hid from his eyes. That's a sobering thought. There's nothing hid from the Lord's eyes. I was listening to a man speak one time in uh, Trinity Bible Church in Morgan Hill, California. And it related to this topic directly. He was speaking from John 1 about Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel wanted to know more about Jesus? And when he approached Jesus, Jesus told him, he said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Nathaniel was astounded at the Lord's remarks. In fact, he was almost over the top in a way. He said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Why did he react that way? There's probably a good guess that somebody would be sitting under a fig tree. It's probably much more deeply, much more deep than this because it's possible. Have you ever wondered why that verse at the end of John 1 is there? that he would see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You say, well, what is that verse there for? That doesn't seem to have a lot to do with the context. And he pointed out, the speaker pointed out something I had never even thought of. He said, not only did the Lord see Nathanael under the fig tree, he knew what he was reading. He was reading from the Old Testament about the angels of God ascending and descending Jacob's ladder. I think that's remarkable. That's possibly true. It's an interesting thought. But my point in mentioning this is the Lord knows all things. He saw Nathaniel, possibly knew what he was reading, and the Lord sees what you do. No matter if nobody else does, the Lord sees it. So that's a very sobering thought, and it should have a restraining and a sanctifying effect upon my life and upon yours. The text shows us clearly that Jesus is in full control of all the circumstances surrounding his entry to the city and nothing would have taken him by surprise. So the second point in your outline is prophecy fulfilled. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now notice it's a donkey not a warhorse. The perfect servant, Jesus Christ, rides a beast known for its service, an animal that bears another's burdens. Is this not what Jesus for, does for us? He bears the great burden of our sin. I don't want you to miss this point. Sometimes we sing, Would You Be Free from Your Burden of Sin? There's power in the blood. It's nice to think that as Jesus enters the city, about to give his life for sinners, he's riding in symbol upon an animal that bears the burdens of others, and that's exactly what Christ does for us. The other thing I'd like to point out is Messiah's riding on a donkey colt is not a rejection of kingship. A donkey was a fitting mount for royalty in Old Testament times. So it's entirely appropriate for Jesus the king, for somebody who's embarking on a mission of peace. The donkey's a perfect choice and appropriate for the occasion. So let's look at the quotation more closely that Linda read for us in verse five with the help of this second chart that highlights the Old Testament scriptures. There's two passages referenced and I knew if if I'm not careful here we'd get into the weeds so far that you'd be all sleeping. So I thought I'd put this chart together, which helps us kind of highlight the, the significance of these passages. The first Old Testament passage is Isaiah 62 and 11. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And then the second verse that he's referencing, Matthew, is is Zechariah 9 and 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the reason I've got those letters or words in red is these are the sections of these two verses that Matthew chooses to quote. So if we were to read the red, it's exactly what you have in your Bible in the ESV. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and the ESV says, a beast of burden. Now, daughter of Zion is a figure of speech in Hebrew that simply means the nation of Israel, But I want you to notice just a couple of things from this. Why is it, we ask ourselves the question, why is it that Matthew only quotes certain portions of the original text? I think it might be significant. You notice that references to your salvation and rejoicing greatly are omitted. I think there's a reason for that. The religious leaders, those that were responsible for the nation had outright rejected, outright rejected all the earlier teachings of Jesus. The common people, yes, they did believe in him and many did rejoice and sing his praises. The whole city of Jerusalem at this occasion was stirred up at his coming, but the spiritual and religious leaders of the nation did not. Matthew also excludes the words, righteous and having salvation. Now, truly, we know Matthew believes these words. There's no doubt about that. He thinks that they are entirely true of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the righteous Savior. But given the present rejection of Messiah, especially by these people, these words are omitted. Messiah, in his prior ministry, has spoken to them time and time again, offering salvation, urging repentance, and they're refusing Israel will not receive salvation until repentance happens and they turn toward the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Rejoice greatly is also missing. I think all of these point to the fact that Matthew is rebuking the Jews for their rejection. Of Messiah. Is it not a call for recognition and repentance? You notice in, in Isaiah 62, that first quote, that it's a universal proclamation. The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Behold, your salvation comes. Isn't this wonderful? You and I are included. If we return to Zechariah 9 just for a moment, I just want to mention verse 10, which Again, Matthew does not pick up, but Matthew uh, or, or but verse ten, verse nine rather really points to verse ten in that quotation, and I'll just read it to you: "I, the Lord, will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken." Yahweh envisages a reunited Israel whose peace will forever end the warfare between the northern kingdom and the southern. But the peace of the Lord, of Yahweh, is broader still. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, that is the Euphrates, to the end of the earth. The very nations that the Lord spoke judgment against in the early part of Zechariah 9, verses 1 through 8, will now hear his proclamation of peace. And this peace is assured by the righteous King ruling over a worldwide empire. This should cause our hearts to rejoice. John picks this up nicely in his account of this occasion in John 12. The Pharisees exclaim, Look how the whole world has gone after him. Then certain Greeks, Gentiles, seek an audience with Jesus. And soon afterwards, what does he say? He says, I will draw all men to myself, not just This rebellious, rejecting nation, I will draw all men to myself. How wonderful to contemplate. There's another point regarding verse 5 that I I would like you to just, maybe just in passing. Matthew is the only one that speaks of two animals. The other three just speak of the colt. The latter part of Zechariah 9 and 9, as you can see from here, says, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Lord's instructions were given to go and fetch the two animals. Zechariah's prophecy is incredibly accurate. I I rejoiced when when I was studying this. Hebrew scholars, and I don't know Hebrew, so I'm relying totally on the expertise of others. But Hebrew scholars tell us in that construction of that quotation, the first donkey is the colt. This is clear from the Hebrew. The donkey on which the king rides is, in the words given in in Hebrew, it's a male donkey, identified further as a son in the construction. The second donkey in the Hebrew is a female donkey, the mother of the colt. And so Matthew speaks of this because Jesus' instructions embrace both these animals. And I think it's interesting that Matthew's purpose here is to examine the Old Testament in light of the actual events of Jesus' life. I think it's quite understandable that Jesus would say, bring both of them. Clearly, from the other records, we understand that no one had ever ridden on this colt. And it's in accordance with that situation that I think there would be two, two things that would help. One is to have the calming influence of the mother. But quite amazing to see the Lord ride on a donkey who would normally be frozen in place with fear and uncertainty without good training. When you think of a donkey, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Exactly. To me, stubborn, stubborn, stubborn but it's because we misunderstand. We misunderstand what a donkey, how a donkey processes information. A horse, when it comes to danger, it will run, flee, just bolt instantly. A mule or a donkey doesn't do that. A donkey's pauses will freeze in place and examine and look at the situation. And often we mistake stubbornness for the time the donkey is taking to figure out what to do next. Remember Balaam in the Old Testament? That's a real fun story. He's riding on his donkey, and he's been riding that donkey all his life. The donkey knows him well. The donkey normally does everything he tells it. But when the donkey sees the angel of the Lord with the flaming sword ahead of him, the donkey stops cold, and Balaam gets angry, and he beats the donkey. And then they go a little bit further along after the angel of the Lord steps aside they get into a narrow place against a wall, and the donkey goes against the wall, bang, and he hits Balaam's foot, and Balaam is angry. And he beats the donkey again because Balaam can't see what the donkey sees. The donkey stops cold because there's an uncertain situation ahead. And then finally on the third occasion, when there was nowhere for the donkey to turn aside and go, the donkey finally is given power by the Lord to speak to Balaam and tell him how foolish he is. And, Balaam's eyes are open and he sees the angel of the Lord. So I think it's really remarkable that our Lord has complete mastery of an animal that normally needs time to build up trust with its master. You don't just take a colt, a donkey colt, and just jump on it. You might find out you won't go anywhere because the donkey will not move. It doesn't know you. It doesn't understand what you're about to do. So again, this shows the power of the Lord. Now, proclamation of Messiah, number three in your outline. So I'm going to read verses six to 11. We haven't read those yet. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It says in verse 7, They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them is in one rendering, but what the them refers to the garments that have been put on both animals. As I've just pointed out, Jesus rode rode the colt alone. They spread their clothes not only on the animals, but on the road. And others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And all this was done to honor Jesus as a great triumphant person entering Jerusalem at the season of Passover. It's interesting, Donald Wiseman in his commentary on kings says of the spreading out of garments for Jehu in 2 Kings 9, the act of spreading out the garment was one of recognition, loyalty, and promise of support. Now in our culture, I think the closest thing to this is the red carpet, where we think VIP, as soon as we see that, somebody important. And this is what they're doing is, is, is it's, it's a symbol and a sign of respect. Now carrying palms and other branches was emblematic of victory and success. And in fact, in the intertestamental period when the time of the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, when they were victorious against the Greek oppressions, oppressors, Antichus IV, and eventually they liberated Israel and Jerusalem and everybody was happy and rejoicing. What does it say there? It was a cause for great celebration, and it says on the twenty-third day of the second month in the year 171, the Jews entered the citadel with shouts of jubilation, waving of palm branches, the music of harps and cymbals, and so on. And then in Revelation 9, in our Bibles, Revelation 9 verse or 7, verse 9, the innumerable multitude in heaven from every nation praised the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Interesting. Hosanna to the son of David. That's what they said. In part, other things were said as well, but this was open messianic adoration of Jesus. So this chart entitled Psalm 118, the third chart, they look to Jesus for salvation. Hosanna means, as you can see here in this chart, save us, we pray, O Lord, or save now is another way to look at it. And then Psalm 118 goes on to talk about, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that this is part of a series of psalms that were every time Passover was held, they would sing these psalms. So they knew these words really, really well. This was not just something they didn't. Like just came out of nowhere. This, these were familiar words, but it's interesting that they ascribed them to the son of David, Jesus Christ, the king. Save now, which is the true original meaning of Hosanna, was used in the Old Testament many times. The woman in Samaria that was starving said to the king, save now. The wise woman of Tekoa that Joab put up to his big scheme to get David to take Absalom back. She said, Save me, O king. That's the same word, Hosanna. Over time, the invocation, the, the word Hosanna really became an invocation of blessing, and the meaning changed a little bit, even an acclamation. And I like the original meaning better. <laughs> Save now, because that's what the people were really saying save now and that's what we need to say save now it's a cry for from the people a cry for deliverance and help and the other gospels emphasize different things that are said but the message is the same hosanna in the highest mark says blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david luke says peace in heaven And glory in the highest. So what was the result of this noisy proclamation? The whole city is stirred up and says, who is this? The crowds, they answered, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Truly he was a prophet. Because he did reveal the mind and will of God in every sense of the word. But I rejoice to think about this. Matthew treats him as far more than a prophet. Matthew tells us in chapter 2 in our journey through kingdom life, what do they say? They shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Not just a prophet, God with us. In Matthew 3, the wise men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he? Who's been born king of the Jews. Born king. So this... So the shouts of praise and worship were entirely appropriate. Matthew knows who's entering at this time. Now the f- fourth point in your outline, and we'll move along very quickly to these last few points, purification of the temple. Let's read verse twelve, thirteen. after the entry. And in fact, this is probably the next day, Monday. You'll see that if you, if you harmonize all the gospels and what happened when. But uh, Matthew has got a purpose, I believe, in combining these all together to show what Jesus did. It says in verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Matthew, or, uh, Jesus throws out of the temple... All those who bought and sold for the second time. Because John 2, right at the beginning of his ministry, he went in and he called it a place of merchandise. The next time, this time he calls it a den of thieves. So not only was it a place of trade, it was a trade of it was a place where exorbitant prices were charged for animals pre-approved for sacrifice. No wonder he called it a den of robbers because the religious establishment had a stake in this. They were getting a cut. And so they didn't want to see any of this overturned or stopped because they were getting rich through this. And I was thinking about how many have there been since whose objective is to make money off spiritual things. Paul warns us in the letter to Timothy to watch out for those who imagine godliness as a means of gain. There are religious leaders in our day who are busy making all kinds of money under the pretext of doing God's work. We need to guard ourselves against that. Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Now we should endeavor to make sure our places of worship are truly houses of prayer and praise, not a commercial enterprise. I think it's just another point, and then I'm going to pass on. Interesting that prior to Jesus making atonement for our sins, he cleanses and sanctifies the temple. Right away, my mind went to Leviticus 16. Because in Leviticus 16, in the tabernacle, the precursor to the temple, what happened? Aaron, the high priest, brought the blood of the bull, the blood of the goat, the one goat, was brought into the sanctuary. Not only to cleanse Aaron, because Aaron was sinful, but to sanctify and purify the temple. It's good to reflect that Christ, our sacrifice, was preparing the way for his blood to be shed and final atonement to be made. I think that's quite beautiful, that picture, that, that foretelling of what would happen in a day to come. The stage is being set, for the final once-for-all sacrifice for sins, God's holy justice would be satisfied by the lamb being offered and the temple being cleansed. Glory to his name. The next point, pity for the helpless. It says in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You know, we just read this real quick and we say, well, We've seen a lot of that already, so we tend not to maybe pause there. We need to remember that, for the most part, these people, these afflicted people, were not welcome in the temple. In fact, if you go back to Leviticus, the restrictions for priestly service excluded such people with physical infirmities from becoming priests or serving in that way. However, the Jews gradually applied these rules to the larger population. And in fact, King David himself seemed to apply these same restrictions to his palace in 2 Samuel. And yet, the Lord stops. In his quest, this majestic and mighty purpose of his to put away sin through giving himself, he stops in pity and in compassion and looks at these dear people. Isn't it remarkable that the Lord throws out the successful money makers? They don't have any infirmities, but in compassion and grace, he heals those who need him most. What condescending grace. I was thinking about this in spite of um, the, the prospect, the worry of overwhelming suffering just around the corner. He takes the time to heal those that are sick. You know, if it was me, I'm just, (laughs) if I was in that situation, that'd be the last thing on my mind. I would be just so preoccupied with my own problems, with my own issues. I couldn't think of any better title than Pity for the Helpless. The great physician now is near the sympathizing Jesus. He speaks the drooping heart to cheer. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. And I was wondering in this connection have you heard the voice of God in your life? Have you experienced the touch of divine power in saving your soul? These poor people were helpless. But the beauty of it is they came to the right person. He's mighty to save. Furthermore, He's never too busy, He's never too stressed. He's never distracted. Jesus is willing, able, and ready to save. Now, this ties in perfectly to what Greg pointed out last week, and I thought it was beautiful. Our Lord's greatness lies in service to others. True leadership is doing the servant's work, even in the face of extreme adversity. Lastly, let's go to praise from the children. Verse 15 to 17. Let's just read those together. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, did you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have perfected praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now the children, no doubt, were copying the adults. Children do this all the time. I think that's quite probable. Perhaps even from the day before, as I've mentioned, saw all of this commotion. They saw Jesus re-enter the city and come to the temple again. And they say here in these verses, crying in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to him. Possibly these children were associated with many of the traitors that were in the temple court. Who knows? In any case, the Pharisees were absolutely indignant. And they scornfully, you just see the, the, the malice in their, in their remark, scornfully asked the Lord, do you hear what these children are saying? And it's, You know, the answer they got was totally unexpected. I think totally took these leaders by surprise. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have perfected praise. In other words, these little people, these little ones, have more insight into who Jesus was, the true Messiah, than the religious leaders. They were spiritually blind, They didn't come to the Lord like these previous people I just mentioned, looking for help. They thought they could see everything, but they were spiritually blind. And not only that, but they were obstinate in their refusal to acknowledge his mighty works. And I was thinking how often the Lord used children as his object lessons. Remember the disciples kept... Whenever the Lord would talk about his suffering in Jerusalem, I think it's quite remarkable. Every, almost every occasion he did that, and, it, and, he, and as he went through his ministry, he gave them more and more detail of what was about to happen. Every time that came up, they start looking at one another and say, who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? Almost every time. I think that is just amazing. And yet, Jesus turns to them on one of those occasions and says, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's it's interesting that um, the religious leaders need a child, the illustration of a child to point them in the right direction. Children can help us tremendously in their attitude, their dependence, their implicit trust That's what we need. Implicit trust in the Lord. Believe what he says. Acknowledge him as our Savior. And rejoice in him. Sometimes that's why sometimes it's so easy for children to understand the gospel compared to mature people. They haven't had a chance to develop all the pride and the independence that comes with experience. And so his answer silences the religious leaders. And Jesus departs again for Bethany and lodges there. The final countdown has begun. Passover is only a few days away. And Jesus will return again to Jerusalem from Bethany to continue his journey toward the cross. And we'll see more of this next week. The parable of the fig tree is very interesting. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, we pause now at the conclusion of our. A study of this passage of scripture, how much we have missed. I'm sure there is many other things that could be said about this, but we do pray that what we have uh, looked at today and experienced that would be a help to us, help us to implicitly trust in the Lord our King. He is the rightful ruler and someday he shall be crowned uh, in the real sense of the word, even though he truly is ruling today, the day is coming when he will be recognized as the ruler from, of the whole earth from sea to, uh, sea to sea. And what a glorious day that will be. We rejoice in thinking about uh, this wondrous Savior and all he's accomplished for us. Help us to appreciate him and to apply these things to our own hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.